Welcome back to Take Orally, a bit of a crossover special. Um, we're delighted to be joined by uh, David Green, a barrister in employment law and personal injury from 12 uh, King's Bench Walk Chambers in London. Hello David, good morning. Hi, good morning. Welcome to the show, thanks for joining us. Um, no, thanks get... very much, delighted to be here. Excellent, thanks for finding time. Um, so we're going to have a chat today about uh, kind of the work that you do looking at personal injury, etc., um, and sort of the how that works with uh, doctors and, and nurses who may find themselves, um, you know, um, being called upon it in this area. Um, so just as sort of a, a, a general introduction first, I, I like to ask anybody who's perhaps not from the medical background to sort of talk about their, their, their job and their role. Um, I did a Google search looking for barristers and uh, there seems to be two sort of stereotypes. Number one is the joke that the barrister is the person who makes you a flat white at Starbucks. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very good at making coffee, certainly. <laughs> and the other one about them being people who wear wigs and shout objection and point of law, my lord, and things like that. Um yeah, well, let's set the record straight. What is what actually is a barrister? Um, well, I, I think you, you, you're closer to the mark with wigs. So we're, <laughs> we're we're lawyers, and we we do indeed sometimes wear wig um, wear wigs. I, I don't actually have mine with me at the moment. It's in chambers, but um, I, I do have one, uh, and I, I have been known to wear it. So um, in lots of countries, there's just one legal profession. There's just one job called lawyer. Um, in England, uh, for various reasons, uh, we have two. Uh, main legal professions. We've got solicitors who are the lawyers that members of the public will interact with most often and that will do most kinds of legal work. So um, things that people might be familiar with, if you buy a house, make a will, all sorts of other things like that, you go you go to a solicitor's firm and they, they'll do that for you. But barristers are, um, we're a far smaller profession and we are more specialist in that we focus on court-based advocacy. So when legal uh, disputes get to a stage where parties are going to have to fight it out in court, that's when barristers are called upon. We're the ones who go to court. We're the ones with what's called a right of audience, which is that, that the court has to uh, hear from us um, if we are uh, if we're instructed. Um, and because of our court focused. Uh, role because of our role as specialist advocates, um, we also will get involved in um, the kind of specialist advice that that comes with um, those sorts of disputes. So, although people go to solicitors for all sorts of other kinds of legal advice, at the point when um, you've got a dispute that's going to court, you'll very often instruct a barrister, barrister to say things like, "How likely are we to win?" How much will I get if I win? How much will I have to pay if I lose? Those sorts of things. Certainly, certainly in the in the civil world where I where I uh, where I operate. Cool. And do you shout objection or point of law <laughs> no, or anything that, like that? <laughs> absolutely not. No, um, it, that's that's not uh, that's not how we do things uh, in this country. So you see um, American trial lawyers striding around the room and shouting objection and all these kinds of things. Um, but for a start, I stay exactly where I am in court. I'm seated or standing. I certainly don't wander about. Um, and I don't think the word objection, the word objection has ever um, crossed my lips. If you, if there is something that you need to interrupt on, a sort of a, a polite, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it is usually what, what happens. Or, or, or I, I, 
I, I hesitate to interrupt my learned friend, but uh, or, 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 or something of that nature. But we, we, we certainly we certainly don't shout at each other. But you do call each other learned friend. My learned friend is the usual way that you refer to other barristers in court. The other thing you can do is is to say their names. Um, I'm terrible at remembering people's names, uh, so when they've told me their name, I usually forget it. So I'll usually go my learned friend. <laughs> and is it true that you're not allowed to shake hands, or you're not supposed to shake hands? So that that is um, a supposed old tradition of barristers, and plenty of barristers still adhere to it. Personally. Um, I, I don't observe it. I, I'm very happy to shake people's hands and I offer people my, my hand to shake. But every time this, uh, I, I see this discussed, people have various different reasons for why the tradition exists. I think it's just one of those sort of silly old things that should fall by the wayside, personally. I, I read somewhere it was supposedly that um, shaking hands was to show people that you, were, you weren't armed and you meant them no harm. And the assumption was that if you were part of the bar you were automatically a gentleman so why would you have yeah. to show that you were a gentleman yeah I mean, anyway, a, I've, heard, I've heard i've heard that one i've also heard that if your client sees you shake hands with the other barrister they might think you're too chummy with them uh, i mean who, who, who knows what the real I, I think some sometimes these traditions exist just to give an air of exclusivity to an area and I, I, i'm not really i'm not really for that so I, I will shake anyone's hand and i will offer my hand to shake I, brilliant no, no problem with handshaking from me. And suppose put one more myth to bed uh, that uh, judges in this country do not use a hammer and have never used a hammer. No, the gavel. No, the gavel, we, we yeah. don't have them at all. No, auctioneers use gavels, uh, <laughs> but, but but not but not judges. It doesn't stop every time there's a uh, uh, a newspaper article about the law or something. They always have a gavel in the photo for some reason. Yeah. But, they absolutely do. There's a Twitter account dedicated to it. Oh, there we go. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's what a barrister. Is. How does how does one become a barrister? Then T talk me through the the, the process. So there's um, there's three stages to becoming a barrister. Uh, the first is called the academic stage. So that's when you you learn the law. Um, and that's done either by doing a law degree in the same way as you would do, say, a history degree or a physics degree. Um, if you don't have a law degree, I have to say I don't, um, if, if you've got a, a degree in a different subject, you do what's called the graduate diploma in law instead as the, the academic stage. And that's a one year sort of concentrated course where they squeeze three years worth of law into, into one uh, horrendously busy <laughs> year, as I, as I remember it. So that's the academic stage. Um, the second stage is the, uh, I think they call it the uh, professional training stage. I'm, I'm going to have to check the Bar Standards Board website at some point to, to remind myself of the exact name. That is another academic uh, course year, um, but it is more, more practically focused. So that's a, a course called the, the BPC, the Bar Professional Course. And that's where instead of learning um, what the law of, for example, the law of crime is or the law of contract or whatever, what you're learning is how to be a barrister. And a lot of the training in that year is practical. So it's things like how to ask questions of witnesses, how to make submissions in court, how to write opinions and, and draft legal documents. Um, and there's also some learning of things like procedure and the rules of evidence and stuff like that. So that, that's learning the, the practical side of the job. So those are the, the first two stages you do in classrooms. Um, the final stage um, is the, the vocational stage, which is I think what we call 
it. Uh, and that is the on the final bit of on-the-job training. Now, for barristers, that is called pupillage. It's um, the equivalent in other jobs. It's a bit like an apprenticeship, tra- like a training contract for a solicitor, for example. Um, and that is where um, you go into chambers, uh, the, the, the places where barristers work. Um, you are paid. It is, a, it is an actual job or it's like a job. Um, it usually lasts for 12 months. And the first six months of that, you are following other barristers around, um, shadowing their work, sort of drafting things for them and, and being assessed on their work. And the, the second six months, you are actually allowed to appear in court. So as I remember, my pupillage at a personal injury chambers, my second six months, I was sent to every county court, in, seemingly in the country, uh, for road traffic accident, small claim, after road traffic accident, small claim. So I spent the second six months mostly asking people what lanes they were in on roundabouts. Um, um, and that's, so, that, so that's how, if you, if you get through those stages... Uh, then at the end of the uh, the pupillage year, the way that you become a full-time practising barrister is that you hope that the chambers where you do your pupillage will offer you what's called a tenancy. So slightly, we're probably going to get onto the whole, the, the, the structure of the way barristers work in a, in a sec, but um, the um, ch- chambers will say, uh, we will hopefully say, would you like to come and join us as, as what's called a tenant? That's, that's what happened. In my case, I was off to tenancy at the end of my pupillage, and then you're, and then you're there, then, then you're done. Um, alternatively, people sometimes have to shuffle around. Uh, they have to leave where they did pupillage and go elsewhere for, um, in, in the hope of tenancy. But yeah, that, that's the, the model, as it were, is to do pupillage and then hope for tenancy. Cool. And um, floating around in this as well, there are these things called inns of court and being called to the bar. Yes. That's another, you know, can we talk yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, you know, it's sort of different and weird just so that we can have this air of difference and weirdness and exclusivity. slightly. I mean, this is sort of for historical reasons, but um, there are four what are called inns of court. They are um, Inner Temple, which I'm a member of, Middle Temple, Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn. Um, they are physically located in, in the same part of central London. And so you can, if you're in London, you can go and wander around the Inns of Court. And that's where a lot of barristers' chambers are, are actually located. So my chambers is in uh, the Inner Temple. We, we lease our building from, uh, from the Inner Temple. What, what, what are these things? Well, they're, they are, they're kind of like professional associations, is, is the closest thing uh, uh, I can describe them um they they've developed from the way i suppose in the medieval periods that barristers organized themselves um into these um into these organizations which at the time regulated the profession over time what they've developed into is uh sort of training and um and, and, and professional network uh, bodies uh, for barristers. Now, all barristers have to belong to one of them. So even if you're a barrister in, say, Newcastle or Plymouth, you have to belong to one of the inns, and all the inns are in, in London. Um, it doesn't matter which one you, you belong to, and it's not the case that there's one for crime and one for civil or whatever. It's just it, it, they're all just mixed. I think the way to think of them is they're a bit like the Harry Potter houses, is, 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 my, uh, is my view. And obviously in a temple is, is Gryffindor, in, in my view. Um, so you have to belong to the inn, and it is the inn that calls you to the bar. Um, and what, what that is, is when you finish the BPC, when you finish the, your, your bar professional course, if you're successful, if you pass your exams, then you can be presented 
uh, buyer-in uh, to be called to the bar. And that means that they have formally said, this is a person who is allowed to appear in court, who's allowed to come and argue uh, in, front of the, uh, in front of any court of law um, in England. And it's the, the inn that does that uh, for you. I won't ask you which inn is Slytherin, or even worse, which one's Hufflepuff. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll ignore that. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's much speculation about those questions, but I think there's a consensus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so let's then talk about the work that you do. And you, we've talked about, sort of um, touched on personal injury, and you mentioned road traffic, uh, stuff that you were doing during your pupillage. Yeah. Um, I think when a lot of people um, in, in medicine and, and, and anywhere will think of personal injury, they think of, you know, injury lawyers are us or whatever those those adverts that we yeah. see uh and and so you know can we, what 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 is personal injury and what sort of things do you see well personal injury um is in a sense it's any way in which people can get hurt so um there is obviously a huge amount of road traffic and trip and slip type of work um, i mean a lot of that simply gets resolved without barristers having to uh, to get involved because that tends to be thankfully quite low severity and, and, and low value. Um, but in terms of the diversity of the sort of work we do, um, so I spend a lot of my time on um, occupational and industrial disease, um, which is a, a whole strand of its of its own in personal injury. Clinical negligence, um, another, uh, another huge area. I don't uh, do it, but plenty of my colleagues do. Um, people suffering particularly psychiatric diseases as a result of, for example, um, harassment, bullying and abuse, um, and another very, very big area and, and sadly a, a, an area that's on the rise. Mm. Um, fatal accidents, workplace accidents, uh, and also something I and a number of my colleagues do as well is, is accidents that happen abroad. So where the, the fact of the accident that itself might be quite simple and, and humdrum, but the fact that you, for example, got... Um, an English person run over by a German driver in France and the insurance companies in Belgium um, <laughs> might, might, might just might just make that a far more complicated situation to be able to get uh, to get compensation for. And, and, and so the the expertise that's called for there is as well as knowing about personal injury, knowing about the way that conf, what we call conflict of laws works, where you've got the laws of the different countries uh, in play. So it's as diverse as the human experience of being hurt is. Uh, and although there's, plen there's plenty of um, injury lawyers for you out there, uh, <laughs> there's also a lot of um, specialist, serious injury lawyers who concentrate on, for example, catastrophic injuries or, or injuries of particular, um, particular categories. And, and that does tend to be a far more weighty and serious uh, matter. Um, so... You you mentioned about um, solicitors and the, and the fact that the barristers sort of, you know, are often arranging these things called chambers. Um, so how how does a person then get to meet you and get represented by you? What sort of stages will they have gone through to, to get to that point? So usually, um, you you first of all instructed a solicitor. Well, well, well I mean, in fact, before that, um, usually, unfortunately, something horrible has happened yeah. to you. Either either um, you something bad's happened to you, and you you need to sue somebody, or you're being sued. Um, uh, so, and then uh, most cases kick off by being uh, being instructed by a solicitor. And the the solicitor's got a hugely important role in these sorts of disputes because the solicitor has to take over the management of the case from from the lay client uh, they have to um, 
organize the case for them. They have to interact with the other sides. They have to be the, the recipient of all the correspondence and write back. They have to meet all the court deadlines. They have to they have to do all of that work of what we call conducting the litigation. Um, they also have to build and evidence the case. So they're the ones who have to go and find the witnesses, um, track track them down, get gather the witness statements, assess whether it's a good case or not. Um, it's the solicitor who instructs the barrister. Um, obviously, the client has a, has a degree of input, and there's plenty of clients who will specify, I want this person or that person, or, or, or maybe I want someone like this or someone like that. Um, but it's, it's the solicitor who instructs the barrister, and we will tend to get involved for specific aspects of the case. So, for example, uh, before, the, before the case really kicks off, uh, being sent the papers by the solicitor to say, is this a runner? Should we should we should we be fighting this, um, or should or, or, or should we be be piping down? Um, or um, if there's something happening in court, and that might be the trial at the very end, or it might be something along the way, what we often call a case management hearing, or maybe there's some preliminary issue that's going to be determined by the court. Um, barristers being instructed to go along. Uh, to do that, um, or, or sometimes just because there's a development in the case. So, for example, very often I'm contacted by, soli by solicitors, often on cases I've been involved in before, and then they sort of go quiet for weeks or months at a time, and then they'll pop into my inbox and say, we've just had an offer, we've been offered this much money by the other side. Um, is that good? Is that enough? Is that not, not enough? What, you know, what, what, what should, should we take it? Should we offer more? Um, so those, those are the circumstances in which I, I, I tend to get involved. Um, and so, um, at that point, then, so say it's it's going to court. Say that you're going yes. to uh, you're going to represent your your client in court. Then, so what what will happen then in court? What's what's the court process for somebody who's who's never witnessed it? Well, um, the 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 court is there to be the decision maker. Right, and also, and uh, and also to be the exerciser of, um, of of power. Really, this is this is what you have to remember. The court is there to exercise the state's power to get people to do stuff they don't want to do. So, if you're a claimant, um, you've got someone who you think owes you money or should be paying you some sort of money in compensation or damages. They're refusing um, because you know if they're, if they're not refusing, you'll just settle it and they'll pay you and you'll go away. So, what you're doing is you're asking the court to make them. Do it. You're asking the court to make an. Well, that's what we call the outcome of a of a, a, a case an order, right? That's it, because the court has the power to order certain things to happen. So that the judge is there, uh, and, and all of my cases are decided just by judges. Um, well, in the employment tribunal, slightly different because there's a, there's a panel of judges and lay people. But there's no juries involved in my in my cases. Um, the judge is there to decide um, the issues according to the law and to make the orders that come out. Um, in order to do that, the judge has to hear the evidence first, which is the facts, um, and then hear um, from uh, the barristers um, about what those facts mean, um, what if there's a dispute of facts, which ones, uh, how they should resolve those disputes, um, and how the facts key into the law on that issue. And so that determines the process, right? So we have the facts first, the evidence comes first, and the evidence is given usually by witnesses, by witnesses showing up. Um, giving their evidence uh, on paper, first of all, they make uh, witness statements, and then being questioned. So um, rather than the, the witnesses standing up and just telling everyone what they 
what they think about things and what they and what they remember most of the time is taken up with the barristers cross-examining witnesses asking them questions trying to unpick what they're doing and so although the, the evidence obviously comes from the witnesses the barristers have a hugely important job in being able to uh, being able to try to control the flow of the evidence and try to get helpful evidence out or try to undermine unhelpful evidence to your own case. I mean, this is a, it's a huge part of the job, is le- learning how to ask questions effectively in that way. So that's the evidence. That goes first. Um, and that will often eat up um, the majority of the time in a trial. That will be, that'll be most, of, most of the time. Um, there might be a need to hear from, uh, for example, expert witnesses. That's if there's an area of... Um, some kind of expertise that the court needs expert opinions on. In my cases, that will tend to be medical experts. So you'll have experts in the in the relevant specialisms, be it orthopedic, uh, neurologists, or, or, or whatever, depending on the nature of the case. Or it could be, for example, expert accountants. If you've got some complicated financial thing going on, engineers. Um, all, all sorts of different, every, every type of expert for every type of thing that you, you might need expertise on. Um, once you've done all of that, once you've had the what we call the lay witnesses giving just the facts of what went on, and the experts, if you've got any, talking about um, g- giving their opinion on, on, on any professional matters, um, then you come to, um, I suppose, the centrepiece of what the barristers are there for, which is the submissions, and that's the, the closing arguments. Uh, what we have to do there is um, it is take the evidence that, that, that's been heard. Um, the, the case might well have, after the evidence, developed in a slightly different way to, to, to that which everyone expected, and so you have to be quite fleet of foot about that. Um, know what the law is, um, and then try to come up with an argument that charts a course through those towards you getting what you want and being able to say to the judge, here's the outcome that you should be, that, that you should be reaching. And so both, both, both barristers will do that. Um, and then it's up to the judge to decide. And then it's up to the judge to, to to make his or her decision. So that's 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 the process. If you if you're involved in it as a uh, as a litigant or a witness, it's, um, your 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 job is usually there to to be there to uh, to tell the truth, to to give to give your evidence, um, and then to and then mostly to, to to listen to what the what the barristers and the judge are, are doing for the for the rest of the time. And and how long will that take? How long does a does a court hearing normally take? Um, it, it, it can be anything from two hours to several weeks, uh, depending on the mm. uh, value and complexity of the case. So um, I, I think the shortest hearing I've ever been to lasted about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, that, and it was in Plymouth. I'd had, to t- I'd had to get the train for three and a half hours to get there. And it was three and a half hours to go back. To go back. Um, but, but that was that was very much a purely procedural hearing, right? That that was where the court just had to rubber stamp something, and I was there to make sure it happened. Um, the well, I was meant to be starting an eight day trial uh, next week in the employment tribunal, which has now has now settled. But that was going to be days, days, days of hearing from witnesses, maybe a day just to hear from the, the advocates. You know, talking, standing, talking to the judge and, and the tribunal for hours at a time, um, and it, it, it completely depends completely depends um and so you you sort of mentioned there about uh, medical experts and so mm-hmm. um a lot of people listening to this are, are doctors and nurses or, or or medical student nursing students so what what sort of involvement do you have then with with doctors and nurses when you're when you're doing your work and putting your case together 
every personal injury case has to have the involvement of a medical expert because the med- the, the, there are um, questions that you can't answer without the medical expert, um, such as, you know, what is wrong with this person? What is their diagnosis, um, uh, most importantly? And then almost as importantly, what is their prognosis? How, how, uh, how likely are they to recover? If they're going to recover, how quickly? And if they're not going to recover, at what level are, they, is, are their symptoms going to, to plateau? Now, those are questions that you can't answer without the involvement of a medical expert. Uh, and so personal injury law in particular does tend to be quite expert heavy and quite expert driven. Dealing with experts um, is um, a major part of the, the, the skill and expertise that goes into being a specifically personal injury barrister, uh, as opposed to being a, a criminal barrister or a commercial barrister or or whatever kind of barrister. Um, now, in the simplest cases, that expert will be will just be a GP. So, if you if you've got a whiplash case, someone's neck hurt for a few uh, a few months, you'll get a GP just to examine them, uh, have a quick look for a few minutes, um, and write a very brief report saying. Uh, nets hurt for this long um, seems to be getting better I, I think it's going to recover fully in six weeks six months whatever, whatever and in the most serious cases you will have whole batteries of experts so in for example catastrophic cases it wouldn't be unusual to have for example an orthopedic surgeon to deal with the, the injuries to most of the body um, a neurologist a neuropsychiatrist a neuropsychologist a neuroradiologist to interpret all of the scans um maybe also um, a, pl- a plastic surgeon, um, a, a max fat surgeon for any injuries to the face, um, and, and so on and so on and so forth. And it's it, not unusual at all to have maybe eight or ten experts. Um, and remember also that in those sorts of more complex cases, each side will have their own experts. So often you will have eight or ten experts for the claimant saying, this is how bad things are and eight or ten experts for the defendant saying, actually not quite so bad, and then the experts have to sort of try to hash it out between between themselves, try to reach agreement over over some things and uh, and not over others. Now, the the court um, does exercise a lot of control there so that the uh, parties aren't allowed just to go and instruct experts willy-nilly. You need permission, and the court will often try to to, to limit uh, the number of experts that are instructed, and, and we'll say, so, mm, do you really need if you if you've got a neuropsychiatrist, do you really need a neuropsychologist as well, kind of thing. Um, but um, in in complex or specialist cases, it is impossible to proceed often without without multiple experts, and so that 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 is usually a, a huge feature of uh, of what's going on. Um, and so when you're when you've got that um, involvement from a um, you know you're asking for a, a statement of um, from an expert for your case, then what sort of things do what what are they writing and, and what sort of things do you want you know what tips are there for them to make your job a bit easier, I suppose. Yeah, well, um, experts who are instructed, they're almost all consultants. Uh, so it's people who've obviously reached a level in their in their career where they can probably be called experts in their field. Mm. And although it's not um, a, a, a strict requirement, in practice, all or almost all have done training courses through, for example, the Institute of Expert Witnesses and other similar organisations to kind of qualify themselves as experts as medico-legal experts. Um, what, what 
they are there to do is, first of all, although they're instructed by the parties and each party will have their own experts who they'll talk to privately um, and instruct, the expert actually owes their duty to the court, not to their client. So um, the the expert does have to to maintain a degree of objectivity and remember that their duty is is to the judge to, to, to do that. The expert also has to stay within their own area of expertise. So if you're an expert um, hand surgeon um, commenting about the, the, the client's uh, psychiatric injury as a result of the same accident is, is outside your expertise and you're not meant to do it. And what, what you often see experts say is, claimant told me all this other stuff as well, can't help with that, so you're going to have to instruct someone else to deal with all of that stuff. And that's, that, that's the right thing to do in those circumstances. Um, ultimately, experts rely on the lawyers, particularly the solicitors, but also sometimes the barristers as well, to be told what to do. And solicitors should give very clear instructions that would like you to write a report on this person, please interview them, examine them, consider their um, their medical records uh, from this accident and answer these questions. And those questions will usually be, what's the problem with them? What are the symptoms? Have the symptoms developed? Um, how are they going to continue in the future? What's, what's the diagnosis? What's the prognosis? So that's the opinion, that's the professional opinion that they're there to, to express. There will sometimes be specific uh, questions as well and most commonly that will be causation has x caused y um, because it, it, with, with all sorts of injuries it is very common to have arguments about well, did this accident actually cause these injuries you see that for example uh, in back injuries because degenerative problems in the back are so common as, as people get older um, and um, also often with um, psychiatric injuries uh, because uh, often people who suffer psychiatric injuries have underlying vulnerabilities as well. Uh, they have other stresses in their lives uh, and so on and so forth. So that's probably the most common one that experts would be specifically asked to, to weigh in on. Um, but, but also generally what they're there to do is to give a clear, reasoned opinion uh, on the questions that they're asked. And so then in terms, I mean, you know, you're obviously a, a, a legal expert, you're not a, a, a you know, you're not a, a medical uh, per- professional yourself then. So you, you said that, you know, you're, you're trained in, in cross-examining and you need to cross-examine. How do you then know what questions you're going to ask this, this me- you know, a medical expert stood up and given their opinion, um, how, how do you know what you're going to say to cross-examine them? Well, first of all, I would probably have had a, a good, um, long, detailed discussion with my own expert before, before I did that. So, uh, for example, I mean, a lot of the ca- I, I'm currently doing a lot of cases about noise-induced hearing loss in, in soldiers. Um, so, soldiers exposed to noise in the ways that you'd expect, all the, all the loud noises that, 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 that get made in, in military service. Um, each side instructs often an ENT surgeon uh, to comment on uh, on the nature of the hearing loss, where, 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 where it's happened and, uh, and where it hasn't, and then on the causation. And so if we've got a dispute between the experts, the first thing I do is speak to mine and say, and, and we'll go through the other experts' um, report, and I'll say, well, what, what do you think about this? What, what, what do you say when he or she says this? Um, why do do we agree with that or do we not and if we don't why don't we um now there's there's been a a fair amount of work done on the way that um barristers uh, do and should cross-examine experts and unfortunately the most common way 
that a lot of barristers cross-examine experts is they do it in the same way that you, should, you would do to an ordinary witness, which is you try to identify inconsistencies and just generally undermine them. You try to sort of paint them as someone who doesn't know what they're talking about because they said uh, one thing one day and another thing another day. Um, personally, uh, I don't think that's very effective. And I think there's, there's plenty of judges who've written extrajudicially about it and say that they don't find it very instructive either. What you're really meant to do to have an effective cross-examination of an expert is to get under the skin of what it is that they're expressing their opinions about and ask them what, well, not to ask them why they think what they think because they'll just, te- they'll just tell you and <laughs> they'll, they'll tell you persuasively as persuasively they can. But to, but to start to tease apart the reasoning, actually to 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 to, to get to get underneath, well, what, uh, uh, you know, is that is that actually your your for example, your reasoning rests on a number of assumptions, and are they safe ones? You know, are these things that, that can be presumed actually can be presumed? That is really what cross examining an expert effectively should be about. It should be getting at the basis. It should be playing the ball and not the man. It should be it should be getting at the reasoning. Uh, and, and not simply attacking the author of the opinion. Now, I've, I've described it. Doing it is a lot harder. Uh, and doing it, what you really need to do um, is you need to understand uh, what it is the expert is saying and what the basis of their, their opinion is. Um, and that's difficult because exactly as you say, I'm not a medical professional. My highest science, uh, scientific qualifications are my uh, GCSE, Jewel Award Science. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Being able to understand what an expert medical practitioner with 30 or 40 years uh, in the field and, and a very distinguished career uh, has done is, is difficult, but, but nevertheless, you have to do it. Part of what's hard but also enjoyable about this job is you have to pick up topics for a short period of time, fill your brain with them, get absolutely up to speed on them, and then drop it and then pick up the next one. So it might be ENT today. It might be... Um, respiratory uh, disease tomorrow and then in my you know i might pick up an employment case and have to really get under the skin of uh, you know how particular financial derivatives are, are, are structured or how uh, you know a particular organization works its disciplinary processes or something like that so you, you you have to get very very deep very quickly and then move on to something else mm. and and um just scroll back a little bit i think earlier you mentioned you about occupational diseases as well that you, that you work with yes. um what what sort of things is it that you see so um, noise induced hearing loss is is the, the the one i'm most deeply involved with at the moment and there's a large amount of litigation about about, about military personnel um there and and, and i i'm representing uh, a large number of claimants claiming against the Ministry of Defence, um, a number of whom are very young, have quite now quite poor hearing and actually are starting to um, uh, to suffer in their um, existing um, employment and so, and so may have large earnings loss claims. Um, the other big areas of occupational disease are respiratory diseases from things like asbestos. So asbestos has now thankfully been banned in the UK for uh, for a long time, um, but there's still plenty of it around. There's still plenty of it in the built environment. And also, crucially, it takes decades uh, between exposure and the disease showing itself. So thousands of people every year are still being diagnosed with problems like asbestosis, mesothelioma, lung cancer, and diffuse pleural thickening, because often in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they were 
cutting up asbestos boards or lagging pipes with asbestos lagging, etc. Um, and so the, um, uh, th- those are particularly horrible diseases and often fatal diseases. Um, and often the legal issues that are involved are not especially straightforward. So, for example, identifying cause and effect, identifying particularly if you've got someone who's moved around from jobs, if you've, if you've been a, a carpenter or a labourer for four or five different people in, in the course of your career, identifying which ones and their insurers and, and linking the, uh, the exposure uh, to the disease can often be quite, uh, quite difficult. Um, and um, uh, also uh, the, the damages often are, are not straightforward, in particular working out how to pay for treatment uh, and how to structure the payment for treatment from, from a defendant for someone who, uh, if they live long enough, will require a lot of uh, a, a lot of treatment, but who unfortunately may may die um, early on in the in, in in the treatment cycle. So that, that's a, a huge amount of uh, of complexity that arises specifically in occupational disease litigation. And and sometimes would, might you be instructed, say, to represent the the family of somebody who's deceased? Then, if it may be that they passed away from, say, say you know, and and maybe at, at post mortem or just towards the end of their life, they were found to have, say, mesothelioma. Yeah. And then, yeah. Very common. Very commonly, yes. Yeah. So, fatal accidents and fatal diseases are are, are a major part of. Uh, of any personal injury practitioner's life, so you know you, you often represent families of, of people killed in, in in accidents, and as you say, exactly like uh, by diseases. And so, being uh, involvement with the the coronial aspects, so that the coroner's inquest in determining the cause of death, um, all the way through to to, to, to getting damages uh, for, for the family from the uh, from the fa- from the fatal claim. Yeah. So I suppose we. Getting towards the end now, as um, I just want to uh, touch on, I've um, we've also talked about um, damages, and um, I've you know I've read done some reading and come across this term called quantum and and yes. damages and things, and um, you know uh, uh, as an anecdote, I, I I once treated it was a long time ago, so I don't think I'm breaking in confidentiality. A patient who would come to accident and emergency who had been shunted um, by a police car. Um, right. So, oh, okay. So they had been driving, stopped, and then had been shunted, and we're talking very low speed. But I've never met a patient less willing to move their neck because they'd they'd been shunted, and they were like, "This is whiplash, isn't it?" And that was their first question mm-hmm. to me. And I could almost see the pound signs that they were thinking, I've yeah. been shunted by a police officer. And yeah, <laughs> yeah happy days. Happy that days, was their yeah. only lie to me. I think even yeah. before they said hello, it was, this is whiplash, isn't it? And I went, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, great. Anyway, so well, yeah, I mean, um, shall we talk about how the, the damages are calculated and what this thing called called quantum is? Yeah, well, well, quantum just generally in, in any case, um, the, the the issues to resolve usually are liability, so whether um, someone is legally liable or not, causation, which is whether the the, the losses and the injuries uh, are caused by that 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 liability by any legal breaches, and then finally quantum, and all quantum means in that context is how much the case is worth. Um, so um, in in a personal injury case. 
Um, quantum will be split up into what the, the, the lawyers will call general damages and special damages. Uh, and the difference between those two things are um, special damages are damages that you can express in pounds and pence easily. So a, a loss of earnings, for example, I, I couldn't work for six weeks after this accident. This is how much I've uh, this is how much my sick pay was. This is how much I usually earn. And so you can calculate to pounds and pence exactly what you're owed. General damages are damages um, for things that are not easily reduced to money, but that the law has to give you money for because the alternative is giving you nothing. And that's and that's even worse. So the, the most common, what we call the often um, will describe damages as being uh, um, split up into heads of loss. Um, the most common head of loss in general damages is pain, suffering, and loss of amenity. So that's the money you get just because you were hurt, you were in pain, you suffered, your life was less good than, than it was before. Now, how do we decide that? Back in the old days, um, that would be decided by a jury. And in most states in America, that's how it's done. Now we have effectively a judge acting as their own, as his or her own jury to decide it. And it's just a question of what do I think is, is fair in these circumstances? And the way that's determined is we have this very cheerful little book called the Judicial College Guidelines, which categorises injuries. It's kind of head, shoulders, knees and toes. It goes from, from, from one part of the body to the other, categorises injuries by, uh, by part and by severity and gives a bracket. So, so from whiplash, whiplash lasting up to uh, uh, three months um, of about £2,100 max, um, so, you know, minor neck injury there, right the way up to the most severe um, sort of quadriplegia type, you know, type injuries. And so the way we estimate general damages is, you know, if, if you've got someone with a multi-site injury, so you've injured your, your, your back, neck, leg, uh, and, and you've got a psychiatric injury as well, um, I'll go through the book, um, identify the brackets, see where I think it fits in the brackets, Um Look at some case law as well, because the, these decisions on on um, the quantum of general damage do tend to be reported to these big legal databases, or maybe have a search for the database and see well where where are cases sort of landing in this area at the moment, or there's there's a case for that much. Is that a bit worse or a bit better than than, than my claimant here? Um, and then and and then kind of go. I think it's about this, and, and that's the best you can do. That's the best you can do for for, for general damages. Um, uh, for, spe for special damages, it's often a bit easier. You know, you're looking at the evidence and saying, "Well, I think we've, I think we've got receipts for this, or I think we've got payslips for that." Um, probably the most complex part, actually, is damages for future losses in personal injury cases. Um, so, if if you have people who are injured in such a way that, for example, their earning capacity is completely taken away or is impeded, or if they need things like care or adapted living or, or aids and adaptations for the rest of their life or for a period in their life, or, or will start to need this in the future, you have to work out how much that's going to cost. Uh, and that, that ultimately is impossible because no one can see the future. Um, you have to work. And so we use um, some quite sophisticated actuarial tools. There's these things that, that, that the lawyers call the Ogden tables, which are uh, tables for... Um, uh, the, the statistical tables, actuarial tables for, for coming up with numbers to uh, to calculate these future losses. And what they take into account are, first of all, mortality. 
because if you've got, you know, say I'm, 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 I'm 36, um, if you've got a 36-year-old claimant, uh, you have to work out, well, on average, how long a 36-year-old is likely to live. Um, you know, so, and, and some, and, you know, some 36-year-olds won't make it to the end of the year and some will go on to, to get their telegrams from the Queen, but, but you know, there'll be, there's an average and there's a spread around that average. Uh, and the second thing it takes into account is what we call accelerated receipt. So, if, if you are compensating someone for their loss of earnings, there is a difference between what would have happened to them before, which is they continue getting their monthly paycheck every month until they retire, um, or what's going to happen in the litigation, which is you get all of it in one big go at start. Uh, and so um, a major um, issue in this area is the so-called discount rate, which is the, the, um, the, a percentage which is applied to these statistical actuarial tables to take account of the fact that you're getting the money in, a, in an upfront lump sum and historically the, the percentage was a discount to say well actually because you've got a lump sum you can put it in the bank you'll earn interest on it which means you'll actually be better off we have to put a discount on to to, to knock that off so that the one cancels the other out actually the effect of inflation and low interest rates means that the discount rate is kind of negative so the the discount rate now gives you more money for getting it up front, because the idea is if you put it in the bank, inflation will simply erode, erode the, the, the value of it. So that's a sort of complexity uh, there. But but part of learning how to be a, a personal injury barrister of any kind, uh, and certainly if you want to progress and be, uh, be one of just um, more complex uh, injury cases, is you have to get very comfortable with a lot of numbers. You have to get very comfortable with a lot of quite complicated statistical um concepts and and, and, and and working with, with with figures in that way cool uh that's the side of cost of living crisis that they don't talk about that uh the, the absolutely yeah, well, yeah it's yeah the, the, the discount rate i remember when the discount rate changed to become negative about it was five years ago the association of british insurers which as as you can expect um represents the insurance industry in, in the uk and in every injury case almost every injury case, there's an injured person on one side and an insurance company on the other because most common kinds of injuries, those in cars and those at work, um, are all covered by compulsory insurance. The Association of British Insurers went absolutely bananas <laughs> because, well, understandably so, and they had a point, you know, in one fell swoop, by setting a new discount rate, the Lord Chancellor turned million pound cases into five million pound cases and turned three million pound cases into 15 million pound cases just because of this statistical quirk of, uh, of, of sort of turning the dial on this number and it suddenly just made the damages shoot up, uh, particularly in the and, um, and over, overwhelmingly in, in cases of the highest complexity and the highest value. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it was a big and quite unexpected blow for the insurance industry in that case. Uh, but but you know it, it's the Lord Chancellor um, does it to reflect prevailing economic conditions, and that's the, that's the way that that. No works. one ever thinks of the insurers. When, when well, well, insur insurance the companies are people. Insurance companies are people too. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, for, yeah. So just to wrap up, um, I suppose just to touch on a few more definitions. I realise we we I probably should have asked this at the, earlier on. Um, you mentioned these things called chambers. Um, barristers yes. hang out in these things called chambers. Um, but you're actually the majority are self-employed. So that's right. Yeah, so this is another about really, that. It's another really unusual thing about the way that we uh, the way that we work is that 
not without exception, because there are plenty of barristers now, increasingly so, who work what we call in-house, who go to work in a solicitor's firm or in a large organisation. Lots of government departments, councils, charities, things like that, and employ barristers. But the traditional model, and the one that is still the overwhelming majority of us, is that we are self-employed. So I don't have a boss. There's no, There are no teams in, 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 in my workplace. There's no supervision. Um, I get to choose my own hours of work. I can take as much holiday as I like. Um, and also, crucially, I get to keep all my fees, whereas if you're, a, if you're a solicitor, the fees that are paid by the clients go into the firm and you take salary um, and, and you take a salary and bonus and that's the same uh, all the time. Whereas I, I eat what I kill in terms of my, uh, my fees. Um, but we're not complete lone wolves. And the traditional model is that we organise, exactly as you say, we organise ourselves into these loose bodies called chambers. Now, chambers is uh, a... Uh, a a physical uh, place so my chambers uh, my chambers actually as in a way that's quite common has the name of its address so my chambers is called 12 king's bench walk and you will find us at 12 king's bench walk in the uh, in the inner temple um and so that we it's a way of sharing things like a building and, and common expenses but also it means that we sort of we share a brand and often share uh, a specialism so 12 king's bench walk is um, a collection of roughly a hundred barristers. We're on we're on the larger side, and we specialise in personal injury work uh, uh, and and related areas and uh, and employment work. And so chambers will tend to have these specialisms. There will be criminal chambers, there will be commercial chambers, there will be family chambers, and so on. Uh, and it's a way of it's a way of us banding together, um, sh- sharing a brand and a common identity, but without there being management lines teams and, and, and supervision and so the way that the, the way that it operates is that a slice of my fee income goes to chambers to do things like pay our staff our clerks it's a whole other area we haven't been able to talk about so um i i i, I think of a clerk as being like um they're a bit like agents for actors right so they they kind of manage they manage your diary but they also kind of manage your career in a way they hold they they go out and do the business development and strike up relationships and, and bring the work in more importantly than just kind of um, fee chasing, which is incredibly important, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 diary, and diary management. Um, um, you know, we, we as chambers will try to promote ourselves as being experts in our area and, 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 and try to try to present a, uh, an impression that we that we know what we're talking about as a, as, yeah. as a group of people, and foster that relationship with the soliciting with the solicitor firms in order to so that oh yeah, this is the, the chambers; these are the guys we want to do work with them and, and give them the money and yeah. That, that relationship exactly. precisely yeah that, that, that's it so you know we, we we all do a bit of that the barristers will do a bit of that and the clerks will do uh, uh, a lot of that as well um so yeah so that's um that's that's the way that that works and so chambers um it offers pupilages that, that, that we talked about earlier as part of the, the career uh, plan so my chambers generally takes about three pupils a year and so it's chambers who pay we part of what's being paid for when we all contribute our slice of our fee earnings into the general pot is that that's there to pay pupils um, and, and, and to offer pupilages. Um, and so you get your pupilage in chambers. And it's part of the, the self-employment model is why chambers doesn't say, would you like a job at the end? Would you like a position? It's why they say, would you like a tenancy? Would you like a position here to practice from? But the practice is your own and you have to do your own work and, and, and earn your own fees. Um, so that's how, that's how that works. And pay your own pension, pay your taxes, or find an accountant. Pay your own, yeah. 
Exactly. All, all of that. So, you know, the flip side of all this sort of freedom is that I don't have a salary and if I don't work, I don't earn anything. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, which is kind of, which is quite, which can be quite scary. But yeah. to be perfectly honest, I mean, look, there are areas of practice which are have uh, really suffered uh, in terms of the amount of money it's made. So at the criminal bar, for example, it's becoming very difficult to make a living. Um, I can't complain in that regard. The, the, certainly, the areas of the civil bar where, where I practice, and although there's a lot of uncertainty, and my income can be very choppy, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's still it's still a good living and it's still a good job to have. And I think anyone who's interested in learning more about what the thing, the criminal bar's going through is uh, the books by the secret barrister are very revealing. Um, serialized by Radio oh, Four last week, that was very good. Absolutely, yeah. certainly, yeah. Um, so, final one last question, one last definition. Um, I realise I, I didn't ask earlier. Um, QC. What is a QC? What is a silk? What does that mean? If 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 you're talking to a lawyer or a barrister, QC. What does what does that mean? So QC stands for. Uh, Queen's Council, and and um, there will come a day when they all magically change to Casey King's Council, um, uh, and and as as they did in 1952. So they, it, it's um uh, it's something that changes with the monarch, um, and that is a it's kind of it's a designation. I think formally it's an appointment by the crown, but it's it's a designation that applies to the most senior and well-respected barristers. And so you have to apply for it. It doesn't just get given to you. Um, there's, a, there's a formal process for applying, and you do it um, when you feel like you've reached a point in your career when you would be recognised as being incredibly good at what you do. You have to have lots of references, uh, not only from solicitors who instruct you, but also from colleagues, people who have been against you in court, and judges. So the judges you've, you've argued cases in front of will be asked for feedback on how you performed. Um, it's about it's a little less than 10% of barristers are QC, so it is quite an exclusive club. And it's by no means automatic. There are plenty of barristers. In fact, possibly the majority will never become QC. So it, 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 it is quite a, um, uh, quite a niche. But it's, it's, if you like, it's the pinnacle of, of the profession. So what, if, you, if you apply... Uh, often you have to apply a number of times, and, and if you're successful, you get to add these letters after your name, QC, so Mr. Um, Mr. James Thomas QC, uh, <laughs> and um, then you, you, that is a, a, a signal to the rest of the world that you are an absolute top barrister, and that what will tend to happen then is you'll be instructed in uh, only the very top cases in your area, and what you'll start doing probably if you're not doing it already, and, and plenty of non-QC barristers do, uh, is start to lead other barristers. So because you're on such big, complex, long-running cases, you can't do them on your own. So you have to have this sort of train of juniors uh, uh, sort of trotting along behind you doing d d doing all the boring work. So I often do junioring, what's called junioring work, uh, to, to the QCs in, uh, in, in my chambers. Uh, and the, the flip side of the QC system is that if you're not a QC, you are a junior. And it doesn't matter how old you are and how long you've been there. So we've got some uh, we've got some juniors in our chambers who are in their 60s and have been doing this job since I was a child, but they are still juniors. And so that, that you end up in this really weird situation where you talk about having senior juniors and junior juniors um, uh, 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 because any non-QC non is a junior. But yeah, the, the, the QCs are, are the... The, the pinnacle of the profession it, it's uh 
it's a sort of stamp of approval uh, to say you're one of the best. And they're called silks. And, and, and I'm sorry, you asked yeah. me about silks. And they're called they silks, are, aren't they? They're called silks, and well, it's because when you become a QC, you get a new gown to wear in court, uh, and it's slightly different. It's a slightly different shape. Um, it has a sort of hood thing on the back and some tassely bits, uh, and it is made of silk, whereas mine, mine is made of cotton. Um, so yeah, so and, and you get you get to sit in the front row at court, not 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 the row behind. So I, I have to sit in the row behind the front row at court usually. Um, and there are all these other sort of little little bits and bobs about the way they, they, that, that they work, which uh, which just sort of marks them out as being uh, being a bit different and a bit special. So much tradition. So much tradition. Yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of the tra- that these sort of these things are going, and a lot of them we're not sort of that sorry to see go. So the, mm. you know, the, a lot of the sort of the silly ones, uh, yeah. I, I, I think, can like they're not. Hand, I mean. The, the handshake thing, I think, is just just ridiculous, and so a lot, a lot of that stuff with no brown, I, I no brown shoes. That's another one. The no brown shoes. No brown. Well, yeah. no brown. No brown in town. No, no brown in town. <laughs> uh, um, and um, yeah, a lot, a lot of the traditions are, I'm, I, for one, am not sorry to see disappear, but but a few, a few, of, a, a few of them do do persist. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, David. I think uh, nice very uh, nice introduction there. So thank you very much. Um, I always ask this for every guest: um, if somebody what is listening to this wants to learn a bit more about uh, what you know the bar, wants to learn a bit more about uh, personal injury law, wh- where's a good place to start looking and and finding out about these things? I think um, I think actually Twitter probably is where I'd where I'd suggest going because there's loads of us. The legal Twitter is is always. Ablaze with uh, with discussion, gossip, uh, and, and and everything in between, um, and um, I, I think other, um, other than that, um, that starting with Chambers' websites, we've got a good personal injury blog on the Twelve Kings Metropolitan Web website, and, and, and there's plenty of other places where, if you're interested in that area and you want to know more, you can at least start off. Um, yeah, that's that, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. No, thank you very much, David. Awesome.